Welcome. This is Karen Motokaitis, and you are listening to How She Really Does It, where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. I believe there are many ways to live life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. I believe we can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. There are possibilities for all of us, even you. Not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Daniel Pink is the author of five provocative books about changing the world of work, including the New York Times bestsellers, A Whole New Mind, and Drive. His latest book, To Sell as Human, is a number one New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. Dan is a returning guest, and in previous interviews, we discussed the changing work world and the old school beliefs of paying people more money to achieve better results. Today, Dan is here to discuss how we are all now in the world of sales. You may not be selling an item or even a service, but you are influencing, persuading, or attempting to get someone's attention. Dan will share with you how to handle rebuffs, refusals, and rejections so you can move others more effectively in your own life. Dan, hello and welcome back. Corn, thanks for having me back. So first off, can you just explain to my listeners who may have not read your book yet or who are still troubled with that idea of sales, what, how you see sales now? Yeah, yeah, that's a, and it's a really important first, first question. So here's what, let, let's, let's look at the numbers. So you got one in nine people in the U.S. workforce work in sales. That is their job is to get people to buy stuff. And that's what we think of as sales. But, um, my view is that the other eight and nine, they're in sales too. And if you look at what they do on the job, it's very much what you said in the intro, that they're spending enormous amounts of their time persuading, influencing, convincing people to make some kind of exchange. They are people who are saying, you and I are colleagues, and I'm saying to you, hey, come and work on my project rather than another project. I'm selling you. Uh, You're my boss, and I'm trying to convince you, hey, give me some more resources for this thing that I'm working on. Uh, You're interviewing for a job. Hey, buy me uh, instead of the other job candidate. And um, so if you look at it in the aggregate, like it or not, we're all in selling now. And a lot of what we're, we're all in sales now. And a lot of the selling that we're doing is what I call non-sales selling. It's the kinds of transactions I was just talking about, uh, getting your teammates to go along with you, getting your employees to go along with you. Um, and this is a kind of selling where the cash register's not ringing, money's not changing hands. The transaction isn't denominated in dollars. It's denominated in, you know, time or uh, effort, energy, attention, those sorts of things. But, um, you know, one of the, I think, real inexorable conclusions about work today is that like it or not, we're all in sales now. That's and That really kind of opens people's minds up, doesn't it? Because we kind of think of sales. <laughs> if it closes people's minds, I'm in big trouble. 
<laughs> well, I think it's opening people's minds from the reactions that your book is already garnering. But people tended to think of it in a different way and, and maybe some sliminess and unethical behavior. But when we think of it in influencing and persuading or trying to get a colleague to do a project with us or even somebody, you can be a parent and trying to get somebody else to open your email, we're all selling. Yeah. Okay. That's exa- that's, I mean, that, that's exactly what it is. It's true for parents. And, and actually, I write a little bit in the book um, about, uh, you know, how to get your email open, which is another, you know, every email is a pitch. And there's some interesting social science on how, you know, how, do, you con- how do you construct an email subject line so that it actually gets opened. Now, what are your thoughts? The one thing that came up, because we have talked about your kids a little bit on my show, is th- does, can this also apply to parenting? Have you tried this out on your own kids? Um, well, I mean, yes, no. Um, and, you know, and there's, there's a limited amount I might want to reveal on, you know, on a, I understand. On a, in public. No, uh, I think that one of the most important things to realize, and I think it's actually a really important question in a, in a medicine. One of the most important things to realize when it comes to persuasion, influence, selling is that we, we got to think about it in the right way. And one way we think about it is it, as if it's something that one person does to another. And mm-hmm. this is something, this is an insight that Edward Deasy, who I wrote about in my previous book, Drive, um, really makes crystal clear in a, in a really profound way. And he talks about it in terms of motivation. He says, we have to get past this idea that motivation is something that one person does to another and understand that motivation is something that people do for themselves. So the best sort of selling, the best sort of influence, the best sort of moving people is not kind of manipulating a lever in somebody else so that they follow your command, but instead it's creating the conditions where people come up with their own reasons, their own autonomous, intrinsically motivated reasons for doing something. And that view of persuasion is, I think, I think is really important. And when I, when I think about my own kids, um, that I can command them to do something, I can, and that might work, probably not. I could bribe them, that might work in the short term. I could threaten them, that might work in the short term. But for really, in, for you know, enduring kind of behavior change, they have to have their own reasons for doing it. And if I can help them summon their own reasons, then the long-term prospects of that are very demonstrably more effective than this endless arsenal of carrots and sticks and threats and rewards and punishments. Okay, well, that's great because for my listeners, I have entrepreneurs, I have, you know, people who are in the workforce, I have mothers, I have just this wide range of people. And this book, when I was reading it and going through it, I was like, this can apply to so many different areas because it's about moving other people. And it's about moving the people in your life. It doesn't have to necessarily be, you know, are you trying to sell a service or an item? It's about moving people. That's awesome. Precisely. Okay, well, the area that I wanted to really talk about was about rejections, refusals, and rebuffs, because I think that's so important because is is the reason is one of the reasons we have the stigma against selling is because there is so much negativity around it. There are so many no's that some people just kind of want to jump ship. Is is that one of the reasons that we don't like huge. selling? That's, that's huge. That, that is a huge, huge reason why people resist selling. One reason they resist it is they think that it's all about um, sliminess and sleaziness and hoodwinkery and duplicity and, and ripping people off, which I think is flatly wrong for some, some you know, a whole bunch of structural reasons in the economy, mainly that many buyers and sellers are more evenly matched than they've ever been. But uh, I think another big reason that people 
recoil a little bit about this idea that they're in sales is that fear of rejection, which is very understandable. Uh, I interviewed for this book a uh, one of the last Fuller Brush men in America, mm-hmm. a guy named Norman Hall, who has been selling Fuller Brushes door-to-door in the business district of San Francisco for 40 years. It's really extraordinary. And he said, and this is this is probably will stick with me for the rest of my life, what he said. He said, such a lovely um, metaphor. He said, the hardest part about being in sales is that every day you face, and this is his phrase, an ocean of rejection, an ocean of rejection, not a pond of rejection, an ocean of rejection. And what's interesting is that the social science gives us some clues about how to remain buoyant in that ocean of rejection, how to stay afloat in that ocean of rejection. And these are are really uh, practical, evidence-based kinds of advice that a lot of us can deploy rather easily. Yeah, it seems like you could put it into practice in just little small tweaks. It doesn't, you know, so often I think people look at these things and go, wow, that's so much to do, or, you know, I need to carve out this time. But you have pretty simple steps of things that people can implement into their life. Right, right. And one of the things that I tried to do in this book is is, is, is kind of um, create a harmonious marriage between big ideas and tools, tips, and takeaways. One of my frustrations as a reader is I'll read a book about big ideas and I'll say, well, wait a second, this is really cool. It's really interesting. I think this dude or this person might be right about this. And then I, close, and then I get to the end of the book and they won't tell me what to do um, <laughs> because that's beneath them. And then other times you read books that are more kind of, you know, uh, you know, distinctly self-help, and they're saying, do this, do that. And I'm thinking, well, how do you know? And so what I tried to do here was lay out this case, number one, that we're all in sales now, and number two, that sales isn't what it used to be. And then go to the social science and say, if this is right, that is, if, 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 we're, if we're trying to move people in a world that is fundamentally different, how do you do it better? I identified these three qualities, these three foundational qualities, the new ABCs, attunement, buoyancy, which I mentioned briefly, and clarity, attunement, buoyancy, and clarity. And then I say, okay, so here's what science says about attunement, buoyancy, and clarity. And now that you understand the underlying evidence here, here are five, six, seven things that you can do to enact these things in your life. So what are some of the buoyancy tips to help people deal with rejections, refusals, and rebuffs? Well, the way that the way that we can the way that this thing sorts itself out, which is I think quite interesting, is you can look at it in terms of before, during, and after a transaction. So, what do you do before you go into, say, a sales call or an attempt to move another person? What do you do during it, and then what do you do afterwards? So, we can talk if you'd like about. Um, um, we can talk if you'd like about. What do you do before? Yes. Um, the, 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 the conventional view is that before we go into an important encounter, um, uh, asking for a raise or pitching our idea or um, uh, going to an important sales call, that what we should do, that our self-talk, that is how we talk to ourselves, um, should be very positive and affirmative. We should say to ourselves, you can do it. You got this. Right, mm-hmm. and what the research shows is that that's actually not terrible. Um, that's often better than doing nothing. But there's a better way to do it. There's a there's a different kind of self talk that ends up being more effective, and it's what these researchers call 
Interrogative self-talk. Interrogative self-talk, as you might have guessed from its name, is not going into an encounter and saying to yourself, you can do this, but going into an encounter and, 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 and asking yourself, can you do this? Now, this seems a little bit heretical, right? I mean, it seems like the kind of thing that will make, you know, Stuart Smalley, you know, um, hang his head in, in, in um, despair. But um, it, it, when we unpack it a little bit, we can see why it's more effective. So let's say that I go into, let's say I'm going into a, I'm a, let's say traditional sales. I'm an IBM salesperson selling consulting services or to the extent that IBM sells hardware anymore, hardware. And I go into a sales call. Before the sales call, I could say to myself, Dan, you've got this. You're all over it. You're great. You're awesome. You can do this. And, you know, that feels pretty good. But I'm actually more, <laughs> excuse me, I'm not going to be more effective if before I go into that encounter, I actually ask myself the question, Dan, can you do this? And the reason for that is that that kind of, close, that, that kind of question triggers an open-ended question. So if I say to myself, can you do this? Questions by their very nature elicit an active response. And so if I say to myself, can you do this? I kind of sort of have to answer. Um, in the same way as if I ask you a question, you kind of sort of have to answer. And so if I ask myself this question, can you do this? What happens? I say, well, yeah, I can do this. I've sold consulting services before successfully. Can you do this? Yeah. You know, I've actually done a lot of research on this particular client and I know their business really, really well. And I know how our particular offering can fit into their business and make their business work better. Can you do this? Yeah. I know who's going to be around the table. And I know that there's one guy who really doesn't like IBM and really doesn't even like buying this kind of stuff. And he's going to be a point of resistance. So what I've done, got to remember to mention the two arguments that I have that are directly for him. So what am I doing there? By shifting from the declarative, you can do it, to the interrogative, can you do this? I'm preparing. I'm rehearsing. I'm getting ready for it. And that ends up being much more muscular than simply pumping yourself up. So, Dan, when you ask that question, it's important to frame it in a way that you're gathering evidence of that it is possible. Isn't that important as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because we talk about, you know, that people talk about in, in therapy and coaching and whatnot, closed-ended questions and open-ended questions. And can you do it as a closed-ended question? Yes, no question. But I think it's the kind of closed-ended question that triggers an open-ended question. Because if you say, yes, I can do this, you, you kind of have to explain to yourself why. And so can you do this triggers the ultimate question, which is how can you do this? And so you begin going over your moves. You begin thinking about what you need to do. You begin figuring out, you know, in some sense, rehearsing, preparing, getting ready for the encounter, which is actually a much more, and I keep using this word because I think it's the apt word here, it ends up being a much more muscular approach than kind of, you know, the superficially powerful of just pumping yourself up and telling yourself you're awesome. Mm -hmm. So, Which is better than not doing anything. Mm -hmm. It's better than going in there neutral. Um, but um, if you're gonna if you're gonna say I'm not gonna go in neutral, you're much better off in most cases, not all, in many cases, uh, um, using interrogative self-talk. Can you do this rather than pumping yourself up? So when when I think about this, I think about like the positive self-talk of really pumping up the posturing. You're kind of going in there. You're inflated, but your legs really aren't grounded underneath you, right? Versus when you do an interrogative self-talk, you're more grounded. And therefore, you can, I guess, maybe withstand the pitch session that may go on or the, you know, the, the sales talk that happens. You have a little bit more longevity. 
What do you think? Yeah, that's probably right too. Um, yeah, uh, that's probably right too. I and mean, what the evidence shows is it, it's largely about, um, you know, we do better in, in almost all cases when we, re- when we prepare and when we, when we rehearse. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of evidence showing that practice, particularly certain kinds of practice, are you know, monumentally more effective than almost anything else in, in achieving high performance. So what this question is doing is it's triggering a form of practice. Okay. And then I guess one thing I want to go back to is the, the types of questions, whether they're open-ended or closed-ended, is more the, what I'm looking at is if you have a lot of self-doubt and you ask yourself, can I do this? And it's like, well, no, I can't do this. Look at how I failed at this a hundred times before. Maybe you need to find a better question that gives you evidence that shows you how you've accomplished this in the past. So you need to be careful Maybe, with the questions. Maybe, but I actually have a slightly different view on that. Okay. I mean, I think that if you ask yourself, can you do this? And the answer is no. I think that's actually important evidence for you. Maybe you're not ready to do this. Maybe... <laughs> You know, maybe you need to push this meeting back a few days. Um, and so, you know, maybe you haven't fully prepared. Maybe you haven't rehearsed enough. And so, I mean, I think where that question goes is, is really some of the work of Martin Seligman and, and how people respond after a failure. There, what you're suggesting is, a, is demonstrably effective. Um, but I think if you say to yourself, can you do this? And the answer is no. I think in many cases, not all, it's not simply a lack of confidence, you're actually, you might not be ready to do it, which means you probably shouldn't do it. Hmm. Okay, well, I'm going to disagree with that one. (laughs) (laughs) I I just know, you know, even being an athlete, right, we've talked about swimming before, being an athlete, um, there have been times where you're just scared, you know, it takes a lot of courage to get up on those blocks, and you may think, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, can I really do it? Because it's, it's, you're becoming vulnerable, there's risk, and it's it just scary. It's the unknown of what, what happens. And so, um, you know, it's about reminding yourself that, no, look, I will not die swimming this 200 butterfly. I will live because look at of all the times that I've, how many yards that I swim with 200 butterfly. At yeah, exactly. So if you're scared, you know, if you're on the blocks for 200 butterfly, you say, can you do this? You say, of course I can do it. How many miles, how many miles and miles and miles of butterfly have I swum in my life? How many times have I swum this race? How, you know, um, 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 you know, what kind of training, you know, think about the training you did for this particular race. Uh, it gives you, again, of course you can do this because I actually have a strategy for this. I'm actually going to go out slower and come back faster. Um, and so that kind of, you know, I yourself thought begins, I actually think it has a calming effect in some cases because it, it takes away the anxiety and actually gives you, like, stuff to do. It's, it's, it, it gives your anxiety something to chew on, and what it's chewing on is actually real tangible preparation and rehearsal for what you're about to do. And I wonder if there's a difference between men and women too, with that question. Mm. That I, I don't know. That's actually an excellent question. And I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, it sounds like you think there might be. I, I just wonder. Yeah. I, they're, it'd be yeah. awesome to have research on that. Yeah. It'd be, it, w- it really would be. Uh, to my knowledge, there is not research on that. It's a great, great, um, it's a great, it's a great question. All right. Well, okay. So the question, the self-talk and, and there's a difference, like you said about, you know, just the positive psychology of pumping yourself up with uh, affirmations versus the, the questions and asking yourself, can I do this? And then gaining actual factual evidence of 
how you've done it in the past or similar things in the past. Right. And that's really important with the before. Something else that you talked about it in the serving section of your book was the Adam Grant study about the calling centers. And in the before, does that apply as well to this, those stories where they um, he broke them up into three groups? One group, yeah. Red, do you care to share this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that goes a little bit to buoyancy. Um, yeah, I think it really goes to the idea of the importance of understanding why you're doing something. But let me let me take let me take three steps back and tell you about this study. It's a great great piece of research. So it, it was a study done at a, as you say, Cornick, a call center at the University of Michigan, and there is students, salaried students or you know wage earning student volunteers who were not they weren't volunteers, wage earning student work study students who were um, making phone calls to raise money from University of Michigan alumni. And what Adam Grant did is divide these participants into three groups. And everybody was treated exactly the same, that they had the same scripts, same kind of call lists. Um, the only difference is what happened was what they did um, in the five minutes before they got on the phones. And so for one group, and the, one group was the control group. So for the five minutes before they got on the phone, they just read something neutral. Okay. Second group, um, they read something again, just five minutes before hitting the phones. Uh, but what they read are letters from people uh, testifying to the personal benefit of having worked at this call center. So look at a letter saying, Hey, my name is, is, uh, is George, um, George Smith. And I worked at uh, this call center as an undergraduate for a year and a half, and in the process, I learned communication skills, negotiation skills, sales skills, and I'm now, and it's been really useful to me because I'm now an account executive at the Bank of Holland in Northern Michigan. It's a five minutes of reading about the personal benefit. Five minutes, I'm sorry, of reading about the personal benefit, and then the other group also read letters. Again, just for five minutes, but they read letters from people who were on the receiving end of the money that was being raised there. So they say. They, they see a letter, hey, my name is Dennis Fernandez. Um, my parents couldn't afford to send me to college, but I got a scholarship to the University of Michigan funded by some of the money raised here, and I'm now a school principal in Saginaw. So we have here is, is three groups. One group um, spends five minutes reading about the purpose of the exercise. Another group ends up, spends five minutes reading about the personal benefit of the exercise. And a third group is the control group. And it turned out that that first group, the group that spent just five minutes reading about purpose, ended up, it's really quite amazing, ended up raising twice the amount of donation money, twice the amount of weekly, twice the number of weekly pledges as the other groups. And I think what that shows, and, and Adam Grant's work and others have shown really profoundly, is that when we try to move other people, that appealing to a sense of purpose mm -hmm. um, works sometimes. I mean, we tend to never, we tend to never haul it out. We, our, our view of other human beings is way too constricted. We think, oh my, we have to show we have to appeal to self-interest. We have to say, what's in it for you? What's in it for you? And there's an emerging body of research that says that raising the salience of purpose can be enormously effective in certain circumstances. Again, it doesn't mean that you know human beings are all virtuous and all you have to do is appeal to their sense of transcendence and all will follow from that. Not at all. But I do think that as a motivator, as a persuasive tool, we are leaving the a lot of the power of purpose on the table. And and wouldn't that be another way of um, the before for the buoyancy of getting somebody kind of pumped up before they make their pitch of, uh, you know, having that sense of purpose, another tool instead of just the interrogative self-talk? Oh, sure. There's no question about it. 
um, that, that no, there's no question about it. That if you if you can, if, you know, this is true whether you're working for your no matter what you do, mm-hmm. whether you're selling or not, whether you're working for yourself, whether you work in organizations. I mean, raising the salience of why uh, is you know why am I doing this? What's the point of the exercise? Is 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 a great and and basically free performance enhancer. Okay. So it may not even be just, can I do this? It may be, why do I do this? What is my purpose? What am I trying to do? Who am I trying to help? That could be part of it. I mean, I'm not sure um, the, you know, there is, in, in terms of like the self-talk, I don't know if there's evidence of that. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean that it's not right anywhere close. Um, you know, what the research shows is that interrogative self-talk, can you do this, is, is effective in many, many circumstances, more than we think. There's other body of research showing that appealing to a sense of purpose can be enormously effective as well. Okay. And then, so we have the before, and then what about the during? Well, during, this is, we can, we can draw on some of the work of Barb Fredrickson at the University of North Carolina, who's written a lot about positivity. And what she's shown is that, is that having, um, that the people end up flourishing if they have a certain ratio of positive to negative emotions. And so if you have an equal number, an equal ratio, a one-to-one ratio of positive to negative emotions, you're actually not doing that much better. You actually don't do that much better than someone with, you know, a, a majority of negative emotions. So even if your your positive and negative are evenly matched, your overall well-being is not much different from someone who has more negative than positive. Uh, that's also true, amazingly, for people who have a two-to-one ratio of positive to negative emotions. So for every two, for every negative emotion that you have, you have two positive ones. And that doesn't make you much happier. What she and, and her colleague, Marta Lozada, found was that there's a certain ratio that leads to flourishing. That ratio is three to one. Uh, if you have a three to one ratio of, of positive emotions to negative emotions um, or higher, you're going to get better. Now, there's a ceiling on this. The ce- it's a high ceiling. The ceiling is 11 to one. And so if you have say, more than 11, to, 11 positive emotions for every negative one, you're probably living in la-la land. You're a little bit self-deluded. And what kind of emotions are we talking about? I mean, are when what are things that people need positive to emotions would be things like joy, contentment, awe, gratitude, curiosity. Negative emotions would be things like anger, uh, envy, resentment, and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So three to one—that's all that we need to uh, have an. Have well, that's a lot. I think that's a lot. I mean, what's interesting to me, at least, is that two to one. Two positive emotions for every negative emotion doesn't leave you much better off than having one positive emotion for one negative emotion. Well, you've got twice the number of twice the number of positive emotions, but it hasn't boosted your well-being a little bit. You've got to get up to three. There's sort of a tipping point, it seems, around three. Well, and that's and that's why it sounds like gratitude practices can become so important because you're looking. You may be going through crummy circumstances right now, but what in that moment can you be grateful for? And about practicing the brain to see things that way. I could not agree more. Okay. I mean, gratitude is one of the positive emotions, and there's a whole wide swath of evidence showing that, um, you know, among the most cost-effective, easy ways to boost people's subjective well-being is to make them a little bit more conscious of gratitude and even start putting in places things like gratitude journals, uh, writing down one or two things you're grateful for uh, at the end of the night and those kinds of practices. And that just helps with the brain in the way to help you reframe the way you see things, even in dark, dark yep. situations. So, yep, absolutely right. Yeah, I think that I think Barbara Fredrickson's research is extremely powerful. 
And so, so why? There's also some stuff, and you know, there's also some stuff during. There's a research from the University of Michigan, Shirley Koppelman, who found. I think this is very interesting for those of us who negotiate. You, you know, I've always, I always believed, always was taught that when you go into a negotiation session, you should be, you know, very, very kind of poker faced. You shouldn't be a jerk. You shouldn't be negative. Uh, but you should be tough and unemotional and kind of neutral in your affect. And what Appleman's research said is that actually having a positive affect, like being kind of friendly, uh, affable in the negotiation actually can lead to better results for both sides. And why is that? Um, I think it's because uh, I, I think part of it is that it disarms people. Um, I think the other part of it is that um, your your message gets um, your your message gets taken more seriously. Shirley um, Kaplan did this really interesting piece of research where uh, people thought they had negotiated a deal about uh, like renting a hall for a wedding, and in the in simulation, then two weeks later they learned that oh my gosh, things have changed, and they had to go back and renegotiate the deal. The price had gone up, and and the wedding broker needed, or whatever it was, needed an answer right away. And you know, it's really bad for the person who thought they had a deal. They hadn't signed anything, but they you know had sort of an oral agreement to um, to make this deal. And it turned out, hey, the prices, you know, we had some complications. Uh, the prices changed; it's gone up significantly. And people were much more likely to make a deal with someone with a positive affect, offering the exact same information, the exact same words, the exact same terms as someone with a negative, with a negative affect. Do you think that has to deal with the mirroring that you talk about in your book? It could be. It could be. I mean, there's a lot of evidence sort of separate from this. On this particular one, I'm not sure um, what exact, you know, whether that mirroring had a um, but whether that mirroring had a had a had a had a role in it, um, there is evidence that human beings are natural mimickers, and that you know if we if we subtly mimic, which we often do unconsciously, uh, the other person's mannerisms or gestures or facial expressions, that we can understand their point of view a little bit more acutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. It. The things that I think about as you're sharing this with us is the mimicking part and then also the that study with a um, radiologist and the human element. And so, sure. and, and I'm wondering if when you go into negotiations in a more positive way, and obviously there's, you know, maybe there's research about this, but putting these kind of pieces together, if it's that human element and being positive in the mimicry that can help the negotiation process, what are your thoughts? Um, I don't know about a research directly on that point, but it makes perfect intuitive sense to me. Mm-hmm. Sounds totally logical and plausible. It's something that we, I guess we could test out, isn't it? <laughs> I guess so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so so while we're enduring, it's important then for us to stay in that positive emotions, that three-to-one ratio to help us in this process of moving people, influencing people. So whether we're writing an email and we're trying to uh, gain people's attention or maybe even speaking or we are um, teaching or trying to get somebody to get involved with us in a work project, it's about staying in that positive emotional space. Most of the time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, you got to go back to Fredrickson. It's a ratio. It's three to one. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to go overboard and be all positive all the time. That actually can actually impair performance. But what she's showing is that there's a tipping point, that you have to have a certain um, 
they have a certain balance of positive and negative emotions for effective flourishing. And Dan, do you remember why when once it gets to eleven to one, the it's the positivity doesn't work anymore? Oh, because you're delusional. <laughs> uh, because life is not that good. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, you know, I mean, if, if like all you're doing is experiencing joy and gratitude all day long, you're missing something. You know, because 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 someone at work is an idiot, or because someone didn't say what they were supposed to do, or someone parked in your parking place, or you know, the check didn't come, or whatever. Yeah. And so, why you talk about why? Um, you know, dealing with the negative is important and not to squash it because don't when we get into those positivity areas, we're like, oh, we don't want to have negative. That's really bad. No, no, no. I mean, and you know, 11 to 1 is pretty high for it. I mean, good <laughs> God. You know, I mean, I don't think I've ever been up to 11 to 1. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to just get to 3, man. So 11 is, is you know, 10 to 1 positive emotions to, to um, 10 to 1 positive emotions to negative emotions. I mean, maybe on like the, maybe on like my wedding day, I have that. But, <laughs> I don't remember many other days like that. <laughs> no, I, I do. Th I think three to one is hard. I really, I agree with you. I think I agree. Three to, I one think is three to one is hard because because I, I agree with you. I think that three to one requires. I think it's a really excellent point, and I, I think that three to one, as I think about Frederickson's research, um, you know, just as an individual, um, it requires me to be a, a. I think one of the virtues of it is it require it, it has gotten me to be a little bit more conscious of my own affect and emotion during the course of the day. And, uh, you know, there's some, you know, you, you come into your office and you've got this pile of email, most of which is a big pain in the butt, you know, <laughs> and then you've got a deadline and then, you know, they're doing construction next to your office so you can't hear yourself think, you know, and uh, so I'm basically describing my morning. And, um, and yeah, you know, it's hard to get to that three to one. No, I, I think it's hard. And it's interesting because on Monday I had a bit of a funk and I was thinking about Fredrickson's research and I, you know, and, and just trying to get out of it. And we as a family, when we t when we can eat together as a family, we like to do a gratitude. Like what were three things that you're grateful for the day? That's a great idea. That's a great practice. And and so we just and it has to be for the day. It can't be. Oh, I can't wait till we go to Disneyland. Right. Um, yeah. So it's something that happened for the day. And it's interesting because it's a it's a nice way to connect with the kids because um, you learn about how they see the world. But it was just a great thing because I would hear what they had to say and I said my things. And I was not as in a bad of a funk as I was earlier in the day with all the stuff that had gone on during the workday. And that helped me shift a little bit. And then that was also a good reminder of, okay, let me practice. What can I be thankful for? What can I practice? Because maybe circumstances aren't great, but there are still good things in my life and to remind me of that instead of the, having those stories of, oh, this and the deadlines and how am I going to get this done? And, you know, I'm overwhelmed here. Right. And those things that are coming at me, plus the doom and the gloom that may come across in the TV or the right. newspapers or whatever. So it's right. a good kind there, of there, are, 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 Is everybody around your table able to come up with three? Yeah. Cool. I, I love that practice. I yeah. think it's a great idea. Yeah. We and, and we've been practicing. It was interesting because I brought it up to my kids years ago, and I didn't think my husband was going to take this on. And um, and so one night it was the two girls and I, and my husband was off coaching, and um, and I said, "Hey, let's try this." And I think my youngest was six at the time, and I thought they were going to roll their eyes at me. And then the next day, my youngest, who's six, goes, "Okay, mom, we need to say what we're thankful for." And um, wow, yeah, and I and that, that really inspired me, and we kept practicing it. And then my husband kind of just joined in without rolling his eyes, and and he was the one actually on Monday night 
that reminded us to all sit down and do it. So it was cool. So it's something that my daughter's now 11. So it's something that we've been, you know, not, we're not hardcore where we do it every single time, but we really tried to implement it. I would say 90% of the times that we all sit together, you know, in the evenings, we have all these different practices now. So it, it kind of fluctuates how we can all eat dinner together. But we try to do that when we eat together. So. Thank you, Grenadier. All right. So during is that emotions, paying attention to that. And that's something that we can control too. We can't control like what you may be doing on the other side or what you may be feeling. But I sitting here on this side of the microphone, I can manage my emotions and how I feel right now, which may then my, how my, how I'm putting myself out there may be better than if I'm sitting here beating myself or I'm really negative about my day. So that's going to be better during yep. the actual trying to move people. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then what about afterwards? Because you're full. Well, here you can draw, here you can draw on the research from Martin Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania. He did this landmark study of life insurance sales, men, mostly men, almost all men. And what he found is that the best predictor of people's success was how they explained failure. That is, people who are flourishing had a certain, what he, what he calls a, a certain explanatory style. And, they, and what, what um, Seligman has identified are what he calls the three Ps, the sort of dimensions on which um, explanations can be charted. So one of the dimensions is personal. And so if you explain things as entirely personal, it's all my fault, that's going to be debilitating. If you look for honest, authentic ways that, you know, I went in and I, and I made this pitch and I didn't get the deal, was it all my fault? Probably not. Maybe these people weren't ready to buy. Maybe this is a company about to run out of money. Maybe their brother-in-law works for one of the competitors. And so you can explain things not as entirely personal, but at least somewhat external. Um, he also has a second team. We've got personal and pervasive. And so you go in to your sales call, you get rejected, and you say, oh, this always happens. And rarely is that true. And so you have to look for ways that this is, you know, think about ways that you actually close the deal, the deal you did last week, the deal you did the week before. It actually doesn't always happen. And so if you can explain something as occasional rather than uh, pervasive, that's helpful. And then finally is permanent. We have a tendency, we hate rejection so much. It's so toxic to us that we tend to think about it as a kind of inherent catastrophe. Mm -hmm. And so we say, oh, it's, it's going to ruin everything. It's over. Oh, my God. And very rarely is that the case either. Uh, very rarely does my going, if I go out on a sales call and get rejected, does it ruin everything? And so we have to look for ways to explain things as temporary rather than permanent. And what Sellingman has found is that people with an explanatory style, which can be learned, uh, an explanatory style that explains things as, as much external as personal, as much occasional as temporary, and as much, um, I mean, as much occasional as um, pervasive and as much uh, temporary as permanent, uh, they're going to end up being more buoyant, being up for the next encounter. And how do people learn this? I mean, you've looked at the research on what shows of human behavior, but how do people learn the skill of not, things not being permanent? And Practice, practice, practice. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's asking yourself these three questions after you fail. Was this, is this, was this personal? Was this, is this, is this personal? Is this pervasive? Is this permanent? And giving yourself honest answers about it. And so, you know, if you go in, if you ask somebody out on a date, and they say, no, I mean, is it only your fault? 
it isn't necessarily. Maybe that person doesn't want to go out on dates with anybody. Maybe that person <laughs> has a secret, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend that nobody knows about. I mean, it's often not entirely your fault. Um, the same thing is true with pervasive. Does this always happen? And for most cases, no matter what we're doing, it doesn't always happen. It happens a lot because that's the nature of trying to move people. You get rejected. But it isn't, you know, you don't hear no every single day of your life. You've got some yeses or else you wouldn't still be doing this. And finally, is it permanent? Ask yourself, is it permanent? And very rarely are things so catastrophic that they ruin everything. And, and I, I think that word catastrophic is a good word here because it's a great word that, because rejection is so bad, it, it hits us so hard that we tend to think of it as a catastrophe. And one of the lovely words that a lot of the scholars working in this field use is, is, is learning the skills to decatastrophize these kinds of things. Um, and asking yourself those three questions about personal, permanent, and pervasive uh, is a really effective way to do a little bit better. So, Dan, you're a successful person. How did you learn how to deal with rejection? Um, well, you know what? I, it's interesting. Until I read this research, I didn't use that particular technique. Now I actually do. Mm-hmm. And so, and I found it quite, a, now I found it quite effective. I mean, for rejection, in, you know, prior to that, before I learned this particular, I think, much more sophisticated, much more actionable technique, um, listen, I hate rejection. And so, you know, so how do I deal with it? I probably stew about it for a certain amount of time. But then actually, at least in the way I look at it, I'm trying to learn something from it. Like, you know, rejection is a form of feedback. So what do I learn? What kind of feedback did I get from hearing this criticism or this, you know, this, this no? And how can I use that to improve the, how can I use that to improve the next encounter? Um, you know, I think that that's, I think that that's how I got to be a little bit better at it. The other thing is that the more time you spend, the more you just accumulate these rejections, you just, you realize, <laughs> you know, I mean, it. you realize, you realize that most of them are not like, none of them are catastrophic in most cases. And so it's like, okay, I got rejected again. It's a plumber. I hate it. I don't feel good about it, but you know, it doesn't mean that my life is over because I've been rejected 8,000 times already this week and I'm still standing. So Dan Pink, New York Times bestseller many times, author of several provocative books, Yale grad, law school grad, um, has been rejected a lot is what you're saying on the road to success. Constantly. <laughs> what, I mean, that has been, continues to be. I mean, let's bring it to the present tense. Absolutely. That rejection is, is, if you put yourself out there to do anything, to make an argument, to spread ideas, to write a book, to convince people, you're going to get rejected. That's the nature of the game. And you know what? It stinks. It stinks <laughs> every time. I'm not saying that it gets any easier. What I'm saying is, is that you can learn some tools to deal with it. And you can, you know, you can, and I think that these tools that selling has laid out are actually better schools, better, better approach um, than what I have done personally, which is basically just, you know, develop scar tissue so that each blow hurts a little less. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's good to know. And that's helpful because sometimes people have stories of those who are successful. They just kind of went down this path of ease. And then for us that have been rejected, right, this means we shouldn't be doing it or we're doing it wrong or we're bad or we're not good enough. And then they self-eliminate. The list of, the list of people who are quote-unquote successful, whatever one means by that, mm-hmm. um, who, who <laughs> um, I'm to, you know, the times that someone who is quote-unquote successful uh, and has not been rejected, 
is approximately never in the history of human civilization. <laughs> well, and I think that's why this is such an important conversation to have about rejection and how to have buoyancy. And, and this part of your yeah. book was just so important because it was like if everybody could realize that we are all rejected on our journeys and what can you do to keep going? You know, what can you do to be buoyant in that, that ocean, that gigantic ocean of rejection of no's? Because we're rejected on so many different levels every part of our day. You know, and I yeah. think having kids is a great humbling thing, no matter who you are, because there's always going to be triumph there, <laughs> triumph and pain. <laughs> right. Yeah, but here's the thing. I mean, at some level, if you're looking, to, you know, you know, this kind of idea of like a rejectionless life means you're not doing anything and you're not learning anything either. I mean, one, you know, I mean, as happening as it is, we do learn from failure. So to me, if you're not getting rejected and you're not getting some failure in your life, you're leading a very kind of sanitized boy in the plastic bubble kind of existence, which is unhealthy. That's really important for people to hear. And it takes courage to get rejected, doesn't it? Takes courage to show up. A little bit, but I mean, what's the, the alternative? I mean, what's the alternative? The alternative is not showing up, which is a you know, which is like a dark life of quiet mediocrity. Yeah, but I, I well, and I think some people get really stuck with that. You know, it's it's that dark life of mediocrity. At least they know what to expect. Versus, what if I show up and I then guess. I get really rejected? Right. I guess. But I guess, I guess, I guess. And I think part of it, I mean, I think you make a very good point about the importance of airing this issue, the importance of talking about this, um, so that rejection and failure aren't these kinds of tokens of shame that have to be buried and never discussed, but are just kind of an inevitable part of leading a real life. Mm -hmm. Well, and so just, just to kind of go on the ground floor, like one of the things that I see parents do with their kids. They don't want their kids to get rejected. They don't want their kids to get disqualified in a race or get mm -hmm. struck out in a baseball game, right? Because they don't want their kids to have to go through that pain. And and my thing is that, well, how else are they going to learn that it's okay? Right. They're not a bad person. They just have, they need to practice more to get better at this skill set. Uh the the list of, of successful baseball players who've never struck out <laughs> is approximately zero, you know? Yes. Now, getting DQ'd in swimming is a different thing, you know? It depends on what you're getting DQ'd for. If you're getting DQ'd for an illegal kick, you better learn how to do the right kick. So, like, you just you know, say, oh, I guess I haven't mastered the butterfly kick, which is why I'm getting DQ'd, or the breaststroke kick, which is why I'm getting DQ'd, so uh, I better learn how to do that. Yeah. But kids are, I mean, and you, when you early start out, maybe, you know, it's not like baseball where if you hit 300, you're an amazing baseball player, right? So 30, you hit 30% of the time, which right. in school is an F, but in baseball, it's an A. And in swimming, the, the DQs, they lessen as the proficiency goes up. Mm -hmm. But when they're first starting out, they're pretty high and frequent. And sure. the parents are like, no, I want my child to get that ribbon so that they're happy. And Thank God. <laughs> but this is the truth, right? And so again, yeah. we need buoyancy. It doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Let's teach that you can get a thumbs down in a skill set and that does not mean you're a bad person or that you right. will not be successful. I mean, I see the same thing we have a we have in school we have this gate committee or this gate program for gifted and talented and I'm on the advisory committee and some parents are making this mean that oh my gosh, if my kids get into this program, they're going to have like the keys to you know the ivy leagues 
and this is a program that's for certain brain development and you know it doesn't mean that it's the key to success but I, I i see that cultivated and i guess that's why my big push on the rejection part is that for people to understand it's okay if you get rejected it does not mean that you will not be successful in determining what success is even for yourself is important too right all right so you've dealt with the rejection and um I also wanted to talk about uh, with the with the rejection is the defensive pessimism that you talk about. Can you explain that to my listeners? Yeah, this is an idea from a scholar at Wellesley College, and the idea is that I think for some people uh, there's a there's a virtue in in pessimism, in actually before going into an encounter. Um, figuring out, okay, what are the horrible things that can happen and review those um, because they're, you know, basically as a way to, and it's, it's, a, it's a form of kind of setting up the expectations and then having things fare better than the expectations that you set. And so for some people, not everybody, for some people, that strategy of defensive pessimism, okay, let me list all the bad things that could happen if I try this, um, can be useful if you go ahead and try it because chances are only a tiny portion, if any, of those terrible things are actually going to happen. And what you've done in a way is you've prepared yourself, you've steeled yourself against those things. So there's a preparation. And then also realizing, I think going back to what you talked about before, is that this catastrophizing or this permanency, it's not permanent. It's not, right. it's not, we, doesn't our minds tend to make things a lot of times worse than actually what will happen in the reality? Uh, sure, exactly, exactly. And so, you know, this is the right, and so it's a, it's a, to me it's another form of decatastrophizing things because what you do is you you come up with all the worst case scenarios, and then when the scenario actually plays out in real life, um, by its very nature, it is less catastrophic than one would have, could have expected. Can you give like kind of a specific example about how this could be used? Do you have a scenario for it? Story. Um, I mean, I guess you could, I mean, you know, give me, um, I don't know, give me something that's, give me something Some, that your listeners might. Somebody loses their with. job, right? Somebody loses their job. That's happening in this. Yeah. Economy. Yeah. I think in that case, um, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a very serious thing. And I think if you say, if you defensive pessimism might counsel you to do the following, which is, okay, I'm going to, I've lost my job. I'm never going to get another job. Um, let me list all the horrible things that could happen. I'm never going to get another job. Um, my uh, house is going to be foreclosed on. Uh, my kids are going to go hungry. Um, you know, and just start thinking about all the horrible things that could happen. And then when you do that, you realize, well, you know, I mean, hopefully in those kinds of cases, it's actually fairly less likely to happen uh, than, 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 than one would think. And um, you begin, and then if you start asking yourself why, you begin to start formulating those strategies. So if you say, "I'm never going to get a job again," well, that's probably not true. Why might you get a job again? Well, because I know how to do this, that, and the other thing, and because I have these contacts, and because I'm going to go out and I'm going to do job interviews and things like that. So, um, you know, setting up that kind of worst-case scenario can be helpful in establishing a baseline of just how bad things can get, and most things. Not everything, but most things don't hit that rock bottom. And couldn't a thing also help that is, okay, maybe I made this high salary, but how much money do we really need to exist, you know, to feed my family, to have a roof over our head? And maybe they can find out that the actual amount of money that they need 
maybe less, like their squeak by number would be less than what they've been living on the past years. So that could give more practicality too. That could be, that could be, it really depends. I mean, people are very loss averse. So if you go from making X one year to making X minus 20% the following year, that's not good. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, eventually you metabolize that and you get used to making X minus 20%, but that, that initial transition is, is, is painful. Okay. Fair enough. So, Dan, what are a couple of takeaways for the listeners to practice in this new world of sales? Well, I mean, if you, I mean, we talked a lot about the ones on buoyancy. So, I, you know, I love the idea of interrogative self-talk. Pay attention to your positivity ratio and, and look for this explanatory style where you explain your failures as not personal, not permanent, and not pervasive. Um, for the other aspects of it, the A's, the ABCs of attunement, buoyancy, and clarity, um, uh, there's a there's a great um, in terms of attunement, for those of you who are entrepreneurs and for those of you in business, again, my bias is toward exercises, tools, and tips and interventions that are free and actionable. And so there's a really good one. Um, Jeff Bezos, the head of Amazon, has talked about this. It apparently mm-hmm. originated in the very old days of Sears. And it's, a, it's an exercise that I call pull up the chair. Mm-hmm. And so as Bezos describes this, um, Anytime he has a significant meeting, he'll have his marketing people there, his operations people there, his software people there, et cetera, et cetera. But around this table where they're meeting, he will always include an additional chair that remains empty, an empty chair. And that chair represents the most important person in the room who's not in the room, which is the customer. And so the idea is is that by having that chair empty, people attune themselves a little bit more to their the ultimate customer. So if you're thinking about a pricing change, well, what would the customer think about that if he or she were sitting here today? If you're thinking about a change in shipping times, what would the customer think of this? You're thinking about a new interface for the website. What would the customer think of this? You're, um, and so what this does for basically no cost is keep people attuned to the interests of the most important person in the room who just so happens not to be in the room. Okay. That, I love that one. That's a great one. That's a great one. I like it too. Again, I've already shown my biases. I like it too because it doesn't cost a cent. It's easy to do and I think it'll yield some results. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that goes back to your idea about serving. And, and when you think about the customer, those are the people you're serving. Absolutely. And I think what one of the things that I've written about is this idea of what I like to call servant selling, which is I think what happens <laughs> when you pull on the string of the concept of servant leadership. Mm-hmm. That's an idea that's been around since the 1970s by a guy named Robert Greenleaf. And his idea was that leaders serve first and lead second. He advocated flipping the pyramid so that the leader was at the bottom, not at the top. And so this idea of servant leadership has taken hold, not massively, but in a number of places, the idea that a leader is ultimately a servant. And I think there's something analogous going on in the world of sales, particularly the world of sales sales. We can think of a servant selling, that the most effective people in this realm are people who serve first and sell next. They're not always, they're not the ABCs of always be closed. They're not pushing people to a time in the line that is dotted, but they come in with this ethic of actually helping people, of serving them in a transcendent sense. They serve first and sell next. And I really think that for long-term sales success, whether you're selling your product, your service, your idea, yourself, that's the best approach. Well, Dan, I thank you. I, th- I think that the book that you've put together with all the research that you've compiled and the exercises is really about how to move others in a sustainable way. It's not about that quick, yeah. you know, quick, get that quick sale. It's about 
developing relationships, making the world a better place, and doing it in a sustainable way. So I really thank you for that. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for the great conversation too. I mean, it's um, um, you know, I think the buoyancy chapter for me was one of the most interesting chapters to write, and one of the chapters that I learned the most from. So I'm delighted that we were able to talk about it so much. Oh well, thank you. Thank you very much, Dan. Thanks, Corn. Thanks for joining us at How She Really Does It. Each week, I try to bring inspiration, empowerment, and entertainment for you. Each show has a takeaway, something you can implement to take those steps forward in your own journey. I'd love to hear from you. You can connect with me at my website at www.howshereallydoesit.com and sign up for my weekly newsletter to get insider information as well as each podcast delivered directly into your inbox. Have a great day and I'm smiling big for you. Early morning, fog is lifting. She's in a rowboat on a lake. She is dreaming.